Hi there, I'm Colin Lowe. And I'm Leslie Dolphin. Now for our latest podcast, Something Different, as we look back at some of the fabulous people we've met in the past 12 months on the Suffolk Money podcast supported by Kingsfleet. This podcast is based on the fact that there are only three things you can do with money. You can spend it, you can save it, or you can give it away. So we talk to people in business, to entrepreneurs, to charities, community groups, and in short, those who have fascinating stories to tell. Take Hannah Debnam, whose passion is taxidermy. She told Colin how she'd struggled since childhood with her mental and physical health. And it's her love of taxidermy which has helped her through some dark times. So the obvious question, how did it all start? I saw a roadkill wood pigeon. I was living in Shotley at the time. And it's just one big road out to Shotley. And there is always roadkill out there, always. And I'd seen, I'd always see roadkill and I'd think, no, I can't do that. And then one day I saw a roadkill wood pigeon and I was like, I wonder. So I stopped and I picked it up and I put it in the freezer and I ordered everything that I needed to, to do what I needed to do. And I was absolutely terrified because I was like, can I, can I really do this? Can I cut into a dead animal when I profess to love animals, that sort of thing? I got everything that I needed and I managed to do it. I didn't get a mount out of it because wood pigeons are terrible for taxidermy because when you see a wood pigeon that's been hit by a car and there's four miles of feathers, that's exactly how they work in taxidermy. They just explode. So um, that didn't work out, but it gave me my first experience with taxidermy, with cutting into an animal. I'm assuming that, at least on the outside, it looked pretty good condition um it did it looked there was hardly any feathers on the road there was no no real blood or anything like that so I was just like okay we'll give it a go and it was the worst worst thing I, I did but it it was my first step into mm. into doing taxidermy and, and I guess for all of us who have no knowledge of this whatsoever we're thinking to ourselves are there any rules on this with roadkill, you can't pick up otters. They are heavily um, protected. So you have to have a special license to be able to pick them up and store them in your freezer. Um, it's normally for members of the Guild of Taxidermists who will get a, a license to hold an otter. Um, otters can't be taxidermied for personal use like someone can't come to me and say oh I want an otter mountain it has to be for an educational establishment to say Ipswich Museum said we've got an otter and we want to have it mounted Mm. they could as long as they had the license but you know Joe Public can't have an otter mounted Um, it's the same with bats as well all native bats are um, heavily protected um, you can't touch them without a license, dead or alive as well. Um, only other ones that I know that need a license are dolphins and porpoises, but you, you're not going to find them on the A14. Just <laughs> so um, those Some, are the other two. Something would have seriously two. changed with global warming if you. Yeah, that would have gone very, very wrong if there's a porpoise on the A14. But yeah, they're the the only ones. Yeah, okay. Sorry, we're we'll laughing about something that's pretty serious stuff. Um, but so let's uh going back to your first 
experience. And first of all, I must just touch on the you put it in your freezer because you just sort of it was a passing comment, and I just somehow missed that. Um, you put it in your freezer. What with the garden peas yep. and yeah, whatever else you <laughs> literally in a Tesco's carrier bag next to the peas. Put it straight in there. Okay. Um, I must just ask for your ongoing work at the moment. Do you have a separate freezer for your work as opposed to what your? Yeah, I've got quite a few freezers. <laughs> there is in the food freezer downstairs. There's currently a budgie in the food freezer that I really need to get out, but that's in there. Yeah, well, um, wouldn't, wouldn't go far, would it? If it was. No, definitely yeah. not. Wouldn't make a, a good no, roast. No. But no, I've got two chest freezers two normal sized kitchen freezers and i've got a very large freezer at my parents that's got some peacocks in because they they are huge hannah debnam uh, talking to me about the self-taught skill of taxidermy well this last year saw the 70th anniversary of the flooding which hit Felixstowe in 1953 Tragically, 41 people lost their lives on that night alone. Local historian Jean McPherson has written about it in her incredible book, The Felixstowe Floods of 1953, Never to be Forgotten. Jean told Leslie about that night and why the floods had proved so devastating. You've got a high tide already. On top of that, you've got this surge that formed and this whoosh of water came. And in Felixstowe, the water actually came not over the prom, as you would expect, but it actually came through where we now know the port of Felixstowe. And the walls of the River Orwell were breached. The water went into the low-lying marshes that were the other side of that, that uh, earth wall. And that ended up with the whole of the west end of Felixstowe being flooded right up to what we now call the Ordnance Roundabout, Liddell's Premier Inn. It, 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 I mean, your book has lovely photos, so anyone who doesn't know where, you know, how Felixstowe lies will be able to get a great idea of, of which bits of Felixstowe were flooded and weren't. And Felixstowe town is up on a hill, so most of the town was OK. But either end, so the west and the east ends of Felixstowe, are low-lying. You've got the ferry, which you've already mentioned, and then the other end where these days the port of Felixstowe is. You've got the Langard area and so yeah. on. And it was that water coming, it went round into the river Orwell and then broke through and I didn't know until I read your book that there was actually a tidal wave that came through. Yes, about after midnight, possibly before one o'clock, somewhere around that period, the seven breaches were made in the seawall of the River Orwell um, at the port, the dock as it was called then. Um, that forced this water through and it literally just whooshed and became a rolling tidal wave which rolled all the way up um, Langer Road and affected all the roads coming off Langer Road at the side. And we haven't mentioned deaths yet, but 41 people, it's a huge number, lost their lives, didn't they, that mm. night? In the total of the 307 deaths of, of the whole of the East Coast, 41 is the second highest. Canvey Island lost 58. Um, Felix Doe got no warning, it was unexpected, it was not coming the place where they expected. They expected it to come over the prom into Undercliff Road, they expected it to come sea road. But through the sea, I mean, yes. so if you're looking out to sea you would expect the tide to come up, water to come over, up the beach and across, but it wasn't that that caused the big problems. That's it. 
And because it was at night, there were a lot of deaths. And people could not escape the flood because it was unexpected, quick and very difficult to get away from. Your, your dad has his own story, and your mum, in fact, did. Yes. And we'll talk about your mum later, but your dad remembers that tidal surge, yes. that, that wave, doesn't he? My dad owned a taxi business at the time with um, his father, Ernest Dodson. Um, and my father had a regular contract at the Pier Pavilion to pick up two girls from Langard Cottages, and he would take them home safely every Saturday night. And he noticed that there was a little bit of water sloshing around Langer Road at that point, which would have been after midnight. The dance finished about half past 11. Um, and he went down to what is now Langard Common and delivered the girls safely, returned on the return journey. The wave was literally following him up Langer Road. He saw it in his rearview mirror. He saw he? it in his rearview mirror. And he's, he maintained for the rest of his life that... He had never driven so fast in Felixstowe. And he was an ex-rally driver. He liked doing <laughs> his rallies around Suffolk countryside. So for him to say he put his foot down means he did put his foot down. And he lived in the flooded area um, in Cavendish Road. But fortunately at the time, my mother and my grandmother who lived next door, they had both got together and moved furniture up and checked that the, my brothers and my older brothers and sisters were safe. I was not actually around at that time. <laughs> so, so take me through what's inspired you to write this book, because that, there have been other books, haven't there? But you wanted to get those final untold stories, because slowly people who were involved then, uh, 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 we're losing them, aren't we? Because it is 70 years ago. I think since I've retired, local history has become a bit of a passion. It's always been there, but it's been the passion. In, I'm an archivist, the joint archivist for the Felix Doe Society. And so, therefore, I do a lot to do with local history. I've done a lot about church history, about the town's history, and finding out some of those little things that people really want to know. And the flood has always been there in my life because my parents were flooded. They lived in a flooded area. My father had just bought the garage in Undercliff Road and signed the paperwork literally a day or two before the flood. Um, he was fortunate that didn't get flooded, but then he had sandbagged along the top of the forecourt. So... Flood, the flood water didn't enter. So I grew up knowing about the flood, but not appreciating fully the story. It, it wasn't until I was teaching that I actually chose it as a topic to teach some children in a particular class. And that really started inspiring me to find out more and more. And that's when my parents' story came to light. And I interviewed other people at the time. Um, just to find out what their story was, including a lovely dear lady that I used to call Granny West, who lived in Beach Station Road, and how she and her son George and her husband, who was the local greengrocer, managed to cross over Beach Station Road, Walton Avenue, and get up onto the railway line and get to safety. That was Jean McPherson talking to me about her book, telling the dramatic story of Felix Stowe floods of 1953, 70 years ago this year. You're listening to a special Suffolk Money podcast supported by Kingsfleet as we look back on some of the guests we've met in the past year. Now, the one thing we love is a young entrepreneur and fewer better than Jake Slynn, who's built a highly successful business disposing of unwanted or illicit cargo, anything from toothbrushes to rotten cabbages. He spoke to me in March and explained more about what they do. There's two sides of our business. One side is the destruction of goods. Uh, in terms of what that means is we destroy anything that is counterfeit 
that comes into the country uh, from abroad. Um, any goods that get seized at the port due to uh, they haven't passed certain tests, so electrical items haven't passed a PAT test, for instance, um, toys that are unsafe for children, um, anything you can think of that comes into the ports all around the UK that is unsafe, um, food, drink, which is out of date, then, then we, we, we have a process of how we can destroy the, the product. Um, and we can do that across the whole of UK, and we're now diversing into Europe um, and sort of covering most, you know, trying to cover most of Europe now as well. And I think that was where you started. What, what was, the, was the one container load that came in that, that, that made you realise that there was a niche here? Yeah, look, it's, it's a real niche business. And when I explain to my, my business to a lot of people, they're quite confused, really, and, and how, we got, how we got into it. But, yeah, the destruction side, there's always a need for that. Um, but how we diverse into the other side of the business, which is the abandoned cargo, is we were getting calls from people saying, we've got a container of, let's say, um, toothbrushes. It doesn't need to be destroyed, but it's been abandoned. It's been left here uh, by, the, by the customer and people leave their containers at the ports all for, for all sorts of reasons. They, they pass away, um, they can't afford to pay their key rent, um, the company goes bust. So all these reasons, these containers come up abandoned, uh, and then that's how we got into that. And now we buy and sell stock, again, nearly all around the world, um, and that's a real growing side of the business. I think that when the Evergreen got stuck, didn't it, and then eventually arrived here, quite a few of the containers there were, you know, out of date and they used, so you, you, you did well out of that. And I think I heard you meant people talk to you on all sorts of media. Yeah, yeah and, that, and that was a real highlight for us. Um, and we had to be careful in the media and when we, when we do media about these sort of things, you know, you've got to put yourself in their shoes. It, it's, it's a horrible thing to have a container, your goods, that you can't access because you can't afford to clear it. Um, or you've gone bust. So we had to be careful on how we come across because it's a good thing for us, but it's a bad thing for them. So we're on the, sort of the, on the, on the fence sort of thing. Um, but yeah, we'd done, I think it was 18 containers of rotten cabbages off the Ever Given. Um, and you know, you were talking 18 containers at 20 tonne each. So it's a lot of, lot of volume. So, so take, take me back. So you, you were working with, you worked for the council, you worked yep. with Sackers. So, so what was it that made you realise and, and be brave enough as well? Because you were, what, 18, 19 when you set this business up? Yes, yeah, so I, was, I was 19 when I set JS up. Um, so going back to when I was 18. So after the council, I'd done a year's of council apprenticeship, really enjoyed the waste. I would actually stayed on at the council, but they didn't have the funding for the apprenticeship. Dad said, look, you can, you can come to Sackers now. You, you, you understand a bit of the knowledge. You understand how to pick up the phone, deal with customers, um, come give it a try. So, and I was, you know, back then I used to just, I was obsessed by it. And I still am now, but I was obsessed by waste and recycling. Um, and I always used to go the extra mile, you know, stay late, all that sort of thing. I used to love it. So I went to Sackers, started on the Weybridge. So literally weighing in a vehicle with, with waste on. And then they tip it in, in the yard and then I weigh the vehicle out. And I'd done that all day. But again, I was meeting new people every day. I was picking the phone up still, um, understanding different types of waste. So I was, I was just learning the industry, constantly learning the industry. I was like a sponge. Um, and then one night, me and Dad just had a chat. Um, and I said, look, I, I want to start my own thing. I don't really know what I want to do, but I want to start my own waste company. Um, I didn't have any money. Um, <laughs> You know, uh, I didn't have anything. I had no understanding of how to start a business. And Dad said, look, you're, you're young, you haven't got anything to lose, do it. 
So I, yeah, I, I made the jump. And, and I'm intrigued to know why this, because it is something that most of us wouldn't even consider. You'd obviously come across examples, had you, of containers that needed emptying? Yeah, I think, so when I first started JS, it wasn't actually a destruction company. It was, it was more of a waste brokerage company. So we were, we were brokering waste materials, which sounds crazy as well, but let's say someone's got a load of uh, waste or wood material in, uh, I don't know, in Birmingham, then they need a home for that. So I was being in the middle and I was finding a home for that material. So that was how we first started and I was just doing a bit of that. Um, but then I started to get calls and I was looking into the ports, seeing what sort of waste they produce. Um, and I think we were just, I, I came across sort of trading standards were seizing containers and we were wondering, well, who, who are destroying these goods? Um, and that's sort of how we got into it and, you know, where we are today. So that's Jake Slim, a young entrepreneur with global ambitions. So next, who do we move on to? We move on to the retirement rebel, Siobhan Daniels. In 2019, Siobhan sold most of her possessions, put her old life into storage and hit the road in a motorhome. In the summer, in June in fact, Siobhan visited the Felixstowe Book Festival to talk about her book, which is called Retirement Rebel. And the obvious question from me was what triggered this desire for a simpler life? I think a culmination of all sorts of things, of just physically, I had to have a hysterectomy for precancerous cells and I nosedived into the, the menopause and how a lot of people will understand that. And I talk um, a lot about that journey of dealing with the menopause because it wasn't an easy journey for me. I know for some people it can be, but it was difficult. Then I had a brother and sister who both sadly died um, when they were 53. Um, I'd been a single mum for years with my daughter since she was four and she went off to university. Um, and also I, I felt um, marginalised and voiceless in the workplace. Um, I didn't like the way I was being treated. I didn't like the fact that I, my career wasn't progressing. Um, and I was just basically very unhappy with life. And I was going out doing all kinds of physical things like running a couple of marathons in my 50s and climbing up Yorkshire Three Peaks in a day and all sorts of stuff, which again, I talk about um uh, I will be talking about at the book festival, but all these kind of things I did, but I just felt lost. I just was going into this dark hole, this place in my life. And, and having written my book and done my talks and, and met a lot of people, um, I feel that that resonates with a lot of women. I know men go through similar things, but it resonated with a lot of women. And so I just thought one day I broke down at work and thought I need to find another way of living. I don't want to do this. I need to find another way of living. Um, and then started exploring all kinds of ideas of what I was going to, I was going to live on a barge. I was going to go and live in India. I was going to do all kinds of, and then one day I just thought, motorhome, don't ask me why. And here I am, <laughs> my motorhome. I do think people, when they get to their 50s, particularly mid 50s, start looking at their lives and life in general and, and think, what have I achieved? Where am I going? What's it all about? You know, in the terms of what have I achieved? What do I want to achieve? Have I got time to do that? Because you kind of think, oh gosh, time is running out. Um, and we only get one shot at living. So I'm very much an advocate of, of positive aging and positive living and doing what you really want to do. <clears throat> 
And I think a lot of people do that and they make changes in the life, you know, more and more, especially post COVID, there are women of my age who are getting vans and taking to the road and having their adventures. And I'm inspiring them with my book, Retirement Rebel. And I love that. And they message me and I try and mentor them and help them. And I love it all. But I know from my talks, a lot of men come and listen to my talks as well, because I think it's important we all understand each other's life journeys they do overlap it isn't just women do this and men do that um and i think we really need to to keep the discussion going and that's what i'm trying to do i'm trying to show you know i went from broken to feeling better and i want women to have that conversation maybe with their husbands and partners and say do you know what we've just listened to her and that's exactly where i'm at and i would like to do something to to fulfill my life and to feel i'm aging positively what can we do or what can i do and it mm. helps them so let's um, come to that point where whatever it was, one afternoon, one morning, whatever, you said the word motorhome came into your head. Um, what happened next? I got really excited and I just said, yes, yes, yes. Um, <laughs> because I've been trying to figure out how I could do this journey and, and what I wanted out of life. And I just felt overwhelmed with clutter because everybody seems to be, including me, working long hours, earning lots of money, living in a lovely place with loads and loads of stuff, but you don't have time to actually live. You're paying for all this stuff. So I wanted to, to get rid of all that and declutter and just get rid of all the stress in my life. And so a motor MC seemed an ideal solution, but having never holidayed and been in one, and again, I'll talk more about the experience of this and the fear of this, um, it was hard for me to look and find out what motor I wanted because I didn't really know what I was looking for, which yeah. is bizarre. But when I finally um, stepped inside the one that I bought and I've named her Dora the Explorer. Dora, um, thanks. <laughs> yeah, Dora the Explorer. It just felt like home and it is home. You know, it's compact, it's bijou, but I love it. Um, and I've got my kitchen area and everything. So my bedroom and I just, I love my life. I love my nomadic life. But logistically, I had to learn how to drive it, how to sort of fill the water tank, do all those. And I've got lots of anecdotes, which I, I relay in my, my talk uh, about um, some successful days um, and some unsuccessful days of, of getting to grips with the motorhome but it's been fun it's been a roller coaster ride and it's been fun and I'm glad I did choose motorhome life. Siobhan Daniels savouring a carefree life on the road. Next up is Jason Alexander who does such fantastic work spreading the word about litter through his now legendary rubbish walks where he leads by example collecting discarded items especially plastic waste. So to mark July being designated Plastic Free Month, I joined him on the banks of the River Orwell and quickly discovered that it's amazing what you can find. So this little piece here, believe it or not, is uh, is part of a firework. Um, so a, a rocket. So you quite often find these little... Is it rubber? No, is it it's, 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 it's plastic. Oh. Um, so, and chances are we'll, we'll find some more of these. So this is just the, the end tip, but these little small rockets that you you set light to and they whiz up into the into the air and you think, oh, that's lovely. And, and you forget about it, you know, what goes up 
must come down at, at some at some point and most of them have these little plastic elements in there so every firework that goes up chances are there's plastic pieces that are coming down somewhere. Uh, no, I never have dreamt that. That's put me off using... I love fireworks, but I had no idea that they have plastic within them. I mean, the, the lanterns was something that was a problem. I know balloons as well is another big problem. Well, lanterns and, and balloons. I've, balloon um, litter is one of my particular pet hates as, as well. And um, I, I... And it was... Actually, it was, it was discovering a, a, a seabird, a gannet on Bordsey Beach um, back in, I think it was 2014, was, and unfortunately it had died and it, it was wrapped in a, in a pink um, balloon and, and ribbon. So unfortunately it, it got caught up and it had, it had died. And it was that, that particular, that was that moment that made me think, I'm going to pivot from what I was doing as, as wildlife gadget man um, wildlife cameras and all that kind of thing and thinking I need to do more to try and raise awareness about this issue the, the impact that we're having on wildlife um, without even thinking about it without considering the implications of of buying that, that single use coffee cup um, but going to the fast food chain and, and getting a kid's meal and picking up a balloon at the same time to keep the keep the kids a bit a bit quiet for, for 10 minutes that as soon as they get outside on the way to the car you know either deliberately or not it may, they may let go of the balloon that dis- disappears and we forget about it but again what goes up must come down and i find so many balloons along this part of the coast some that have come um, from inland but a lot of them have blown over um, from the channel, over from the continent. I've, I've picked, a, I walk the dog along this part of Felix Day quite regularly and I've picked up several balloons. Some are still full, which is brilliant because it means that they don't get into the water. I was really lucky uh, off the American coast uh, of America to, to go on a whale watching trip and halfway out to see the whales, the boat stopped because there was some balloons in the water. And you can see how whales and other animals think that they're fish and that's how they can sometimes try and eat them yeah yeah and, and you see it's it's amazing how how particularly there's lots of different types of balloons so you've got your the mylar balloons that have, have the kind of the the foily kind that you you, you see and um and they last abs- absolutely ages and then you get the more kind of latex rubber rubber kind and 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 what you find particularly with 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 them i think there's a lot of the manufacturers will say that they're more environmentally friendly and they will kind of biodegrade over a certain amount of time but they still take time and what tends to happen is they go up higher up in the into the atmosphere and they get to a certain level and then they explode and and fall back down to earth and when they explode what happens is that the the balloon material itself fragments into into strips and they genuinely look like jellyfish so imagine them falling into the water it is very easy to see how marine life can mistake certainly balloons and other other plastic items as as food um, and it, it's 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 scary how much they look like how much they look like food 
Should we carry on walking? Yes. And we'll, we'll talk more because you've mentioned about uh, wildlife gadget and you mentioned how old some of the things are that you pick up. He's, he's in charge of his, his rubbish museum as well. So we'll talk about some of those things. We'll keep having a look and picking things up. You've added it to your, to your collection there, have you? Yeah, so, they, so here are so a few other bio bees that I've cut, um, the nurdles I've co- collected. And you can see the, the darker peppercorn size um, plastic pellets there. They're the bio beads. So the bio beads um, are um, materials that are used in water treatment works. And they use billions and billions of them to, to help filter the water. Um, and unfortunately, when things get flushed down the loo that shouldn't be flushed down the loo, things litter that, that finds its way down into the storm drains as well, um, if they find their, find their way to the water treatment works, at some point they're going to come up against um, these, these mesh fil- filtration units filled with these bio beads. And when you've got stuff um, that's got hard jagged edges it can rip into that mesh and billions and billions of these bi- plastic bio beads spill out into our waterways and um, and just and add to the plastic pollution problem that is the inspirational jason alexander there chatting to leslie about waging war on waste you're listening to a special podcast from suffolk money supported by kingsfleet as we look back at some of the people we've met in 2023 including Jenna Ackerley. Jenna runs a business called Events Under Canvas, which provides teepees and tents to create the perfect alfresco setting, especially for high society gatherings, featuring some very high profile names. I was really pleased that Jenna was able to speak to me a few months back about what it is that drives her. I am a risk taker and I always have been, but actually I think part of my confidence in taking risks is working out my fallbacks. So I think always just having those options Mm. and what's really helped me with that and I'd recommend anybody doing is mentorship. So Mm. finding someone who has done what you want to do Mm. and talking to them. And my experience in Suffolk is that people that have been successful at doing this are very happy to give their advice for free. So I would to tell everybody not to pay for advice in that regard just in terms of starting up business just find someone who's done it um, I reached out to a previous boss of mine actually who I'd worked for in Ipswich years before who had always inspired me and asked him if he'd be my mentor right at the start was one of the first calls I made and so actually it was his support that helped me gauge that and the right way to go about things and when to jump and when not to and when to hold back that's really interesting. I think that's one thing we often overlook, of always having someone who you can talk to in the early stages of a business, because it's a pretty lonely affair, even when you're sort of just cracking on and having to make decisions. To have someone that you can bounce things off is critical, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. And I think, you know, there's, it's not only really lonely, but I think... Um, I don't know the right term to say, but I feel like there's also a lot of vultures out there. And I don't necessarily mean that negatively, but there's a lot of other small business owners trying to capitalize on startups and small businesses and so I think some business owners are left paying for advice and when I hear about it I almost find it quite frustrating because I don't necessarily think it's the right advice so um, you know the the biggest lesson for me for the first three years of running my business I didn't pay anybody for any advice on how to run my business. It was all free advice of people that I just built a network around me asking for help, you know, and and I do now. So I think then once you cross a threshold, 
and you're into the small business zone, well then of course you need to pay for advice and there's lots of advice you need, but by then you've got that inner confidence that you can listen to your own voice and then you go out to get targeted advice, whether that's marketing or finance or HR or whatever it is. But I think some people make the mistake of latching on to consultants early on, thinking they're gonna help them grow an entrepreneurial business and I don't think that's the way it works. That's very interesting. So is that something you now reciprocate in people coming to you and asking for advice? Yeah, it is, it is. And it feels like a real pay it forward kind of thing actually. And it's something I'm really passionate about. So I've been mentoring two small business owners, entrepreneurs um, over the last couple of years. One girl, Abby, who I've been sort of working with for the last four years, who I'd worked with as a customer very briefly and she'd had a sparky idea and then asked to talk to me. And we're still friends. We, we meet often and talk about stuff and support her. Uh, and then I've also just this year um, been appointed a trustee for Inspire, a youth charity in Ipswich, um, which I'm really proud to be involved with. I offered myself up as a volunteer to be a business coach with them. Um, I think um, I think people that have either been through the private school sector or are just really well networked and supported just have this inner sense that they need to find networks. But I don't necessarily think people that are outside of that bracket would know where to start. So mm. that was my incentive for contacting Inspire and seeing the work they do with the Prince's Trust and the programs they're delivering. Mm. And yeah, so I'm really hoping to work with them to sort of make this even more formal. And you know, certainly anyone listening, I think just reach out to anyone, whether you know them or not, if you can see someone doing good work. And the moment someone tries to charge you for their time, that's when you back off, in my in my opinion. <laughs> okay, so let's just re return back to the story. So your target, if target is the right word, it was 12 in the first year. Is that right? right? 12 yes. events. And you had 50... 56. 56. Yes. Okay. So how did you cope with a level of demand that was way beyond anything you'd anticipated? Um, winging it, to be honest with you. you know, um, I, I mean, because it was, there was never really a business plan. And actually, interestingly, now 10 years on, what I would say is that goes back to the advice thing we're just talking about. Um, most people think they need a full plan. And I would say most people who have done well in business threw the plan out the window. And it's about flexibility, being open-minded, um, you know, yourself, Colin, if you've started your own business, I think there's a thing of, um, you know, bank managers and finance people and consultants will tell you it's really important to have a plan. And so as much as I had a plan in the sense of I understood my profit margins, I understood what I needed to charge and what it was going to cost me to do it. I didn't really have that much of a plan. So that 12 threshold was more about proving to me mm. it was worth starting a business. There mm. was no upper limit to that. So really it was a case of putting ourselves out there, letting people know what we're doing and then having a seriously can-do approach to every single inquiry that came in. Um, you know, and like say the Isle of Wight Festival one was a really interesting one in our first year, how on earth we were going to get five teepees and all the kit onto an island. But actually the attitude was, and still is actually, we say yes, and then we work it out because mm. if anyone can do it, we know we can. And mm. over time, I've just built a really, really resourceful team of people who, mm. who like that, who like going the extra mile for people and like being able to say yes rather than no. Mm. And um, yeah, just so there's that inner confidence, trusting that you can work it out, being really open with people. Um, so there's been some conversations over the years where a customer will ask for something and the conversation is, well, yes, we want to do this. Give me 24 hours. I'll work it out and I'll come back to you and just being really open and honest. That led to a job in 2017 where we took our tents to Mount Etna in Sicily and that was a completely random inquiry. Same story, someone rang and said, I'm doing an event for 50 people 
on an active volcano. Can you come and build all your equipment there? And again, that was one of those conversations and we just worked it out and we did it. It was incredible. The team loved it and got some great PR off the back of it. Jenna Ackerley from Events Under Canvas talking to Colin about the importance of a can-do mentality. Next up, the late and much-missed comedian Roy Hudd and the fundraising drive to create a statue in his memory, the aim being to install it outside the Theatre Royal in Bury St Edmunds. For a podcast in August, I spoke to Roy's widow Debbie and the sculptor Sean Hedges-Quinn, who's producing the bronze artwork. I started by asking Debbie, what would Roy think about it all? Do you know, I think he'd be quite humbled. Um, He was very, very um, involved in getting together the uh, statue for Max Miller down in Brighton. Uh, They came to Roy, the Max Miller Society, saying, oh, Roy, we've... Because he was patron of it. And they said, oh, Roy, we've been raising this money, but we seem to have come to a halt. So, Roy, can you help? So Roy went through his address book and he wrote by hand, as Roy always did, to everybody in his address book, old address books and new, just in case it was still living. And, uh, yeah, and he just pleaded with everybody and he you know so he was thrilled at that and thought well that's wonderful that you know he felt that Max should be immortalized and I think he'd be a bit oh don't be so silly you know but at the same time underneath it he'd be so chuffed. (laughs) We've we've already been talking you've brought photos for Sean to have a look at do you know how you want him to look, uh, what sort of statue you want. Yes, well, Roy was definitely one of the people. That's why I don't want him on a plinth, because that makes him untouchable. But Roy was, um, as I say, one of the people, and when you spoke with him, he would be so close to you and as if you were the only person there. So I thought, if he's on a bench, you could sit and have a chat with him. And and he loved that. I mean, it was his favourite. I used to always say it was his favourite pastime, talking. <laughs> so, yeah, definitely that intimacy with Roy. Um, and you've you got to choose then a, a sort of period of his life where you think of him, which Sean said, well, where do you want to go with this? And I said, <laughs> because I met Roy in 1980, I thought, well, maybe the 80s were a little bit too young. But I thought the 90s, 1990s, early 200s, that's where people still remember Roy visual. I mean, he didn't change much throughout his life, his face. But, um, yes, I I thought sort of 1990s and, um, yeah. And and Sean, for you, so so you've got the photos and, and you've got an idea of pose, but where do you go with this? Do you come up with suggestions as well? Oh yeah, it's, it's it's a collaboration, you know. We, you know, I want ev- everybody to be happy with whatever's, you know. Uh, I want the public to enjoy it. It's got to be a very interactive statue. It's got to be a statue that people can, like you said, can sit next to it, mm-hmm. have their picture taken. You know, take advantage of the you know the social media world we live in, and and you know, and the statue will then spread via social media. This is here, and hopefully attract more people to Bury St Edmunds, and, uh, and and you know, it's just. You know, these are all the things that I've discussed with Debbie mm. and, and like I said, Captain His Character is the key thing and the pose, which is, you know, you know we're not just talking about, you know, his very, very not gap Batiste teeth, which is obviously going to be there because that is the first thing I remember when I see him. Yeah. And uh, his wide eyes and his excited, playful, fun, you know, 
way his face was. Um, that, that, you know, that's, that's all part of the thing that I'm going to try and capture the most, just to make everybody happy. And, and process-wise, where does it go? You start by making a, a, what's called a maquette, don't you? That's right, yeah. So, I mean, I'll, I'll make a little miniature, like a 12 or 18-inch high maquette, which is French for miniature. And uh, and then that way you can kind of like get the pose right. It's not necessarily going to be an absolute likeness because that's not important at this stage. What is important is what he's going to look like in 3D from 360 degrees all the way around. And obviously when I've done that and made a little bench and sat him down, um, then obviously I'll show to Debbie and I'll say, Debbie, what do you think? And if she wants any changes... Um, I can change it quite easy when it's at that stage. I don't want her to, you know, when I've got a full-size one and I've spent months of my life creating it, I said, well, I don't really know, and then change it. Um, too late then, you know, for me. So hopefully the changes will be at, at the maquette stage. That's, that's what the maquette's really all about, and to get my head around the whole, you know, his likeness and the way he is. It's, it's very important. It's a very important aspect of the sculpture process. I mean, it's an expensive business. How much are you having to raise, Debbie? Uh, Just say it quickly. Yes. Hundred thousand, <laughs> and and that's because there's a huge process in this, isn't it? And then at the end, you've got all this bronze as well. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, when I say a hundred thousand, I think I'm getting a hundred thousand, and that, that's you know that's not happening. I mean, I mean, obviously that hundred thousand includes all the groundwork, the bench, you know, the, the planning applications, the forms, and all that sort of thing. That all that goes into it. And the bronzing process is an enormously expensive process. You know, it's you know bronze is almost considered the precious metal now. It's, it's not far off the price of silver even. So you know, and it's a lot of bronze as you know so so that in itself is is well over a third of the total cost of the statue and that's just the bronzing before i do anything and it's months of work for you as well isn't it oh yeah absolutely yeah yeah it's 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 brilliant you know absolutely spot on so that's sculptor sean hedges quinn who's been given the task of creating that bronze statue in memory of the late comedian roy hudd and i can't wait for the moment when it's finally unveiled and what a moment that'll be for his widow, Debbie, friends, family and fans. And we thank Debbie for giving us her time and Sean too. Finally, in this review, the inspirational Georgina Hanser, who provides support and activities at her small holding near Ipswich called Fairview Farm. And I had the privilege of going out to see Georgina. It's a place for people with disabilities or learning difficulties or those who just struggle to fit in um, in society as a whole. And she firmly believes that they deserve better. It was a wonderful journey and I was so pleased to be able to meet her and find out what they do there. So she gave me a tour of the site and quite frankly, it was really impressive. This is a really good example of how we really do believe in person-centred care. We have one person that we support who really needs additional space uh, where they can kind of be on their own and have that time out. So we actually built this room for them. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's just, it is important to, to recognise that we do really try and meet people's individual needs. Um, and that individual now comes to us four days a week and we believe it's a real success story. So we are able to, to do that and we've done it. So mm. it's, it's really good. We've been looking a lot at sensory processing disorders and the challenges that lots of us have with mm. sensory input and 
it's a it's a really new area in the UK. We're quite behind other countries in terms of the science behind it, the knowledge, the training, the how we should all be considering sensory um, experiences for everybody. I mean, lots of the big supermarkets now are looking at, you know, I think they kind of label it Autism Wednesday or something mm, where they turn. Mm. But it's such a big thing for so many people and especially in this field of work, I, I do believe that, you know, we've set up an organisation to support people with disabilities and it's really important that we recognise that and therefore try and accommodate people's disabilities and support them with their disabilities rather than just expecting that one size fits all um, because the whole point that people come here is because they can't integrate fully into employment and wider society so if that is the baseline of our understanding then surely we have to be looking at everyone individually and saying, well, what do they need? What don't they need? What is helpful for them? What's unhelpful for them? And, yeah, the, the more you research and look at sensory information that is available to us the more you realize how important this is for everybody mm -hmm. um, but for some people it is absolutely essential um, and if you don't have that basic level of a knowledge empathy and understanding um, you know you're really setting that person up to fail so it's really important to us that whilst we definitely do not know everything and we do not have all the answers, we at least try to do what we can to meet people's needs in a really person-centred way. Thank you so much for just showing us around, Georgina. You're welcome. Um, and meeting some of your young people too. And I realised as soon as we put a microphone in front of a few of them. Yes. <laughs> they just went quiet, <laughs> all the chatty ones. Uh, but no, it's been brilliant. Thank you so much. Um, as you said, you're really limited in what more you can do. Yeah. But to me, this just feels as though you're delivering to individuals exactly the support they need. Thank you. We, we think we are. We think we've got a really special thing going here. Um, but what I would say is that there's... There's really lots of opportunities for people if they may be considering setting something up um, because actually we want there to be lots of choice for our adults who have disabilities. We want them to have a whole suite of provisions that they can actively choose from so that what, what you know, what one... Thing might meet one person's needs another they might have we, we don't want it to simply be a care provision the, you know care providers really need to and and those that are already operating do you know be able to meet a whole wide range of interests not just care needs so one person might have a real passion for gardening but another person might have a real passion for art or and so we want there to be more variety more choice a greater marketplace for people so if if people are thinking about setting up a day provision or some form of support for people with adults with disabilities i would definitely say there is opportunity um there there is a need there is a demand 
the higher quality we have is only a good thing for everybody um, and just coming up with that what can I do what can I offer really well and it might be really small and it might be really niche but actually that might really meet the needs of two or three or four people and that will be the most fulfilling thing you've ever done so if if people are listening to this thinking well I'm really good at that and I'm really passionate about that and I believe I could share that skill set and I'd love to work with people um, who have additional needs in some capacity then start exploring what that looks like go to go to meet people like myself who run um, day provisions and ask questions and be nosy and um, you know just do your market research don't be limited because you think well I, I can't do this and I can't do that there were so many things that I couldn't do when I set Fairview up and we have Google you know we have Google you can put yourself on a training course for anything nowadays so don't be put off if you've got a passion if you want more for Suffolk and for the people that live in Suffolk regardless of what their need is then just explore it start looking at it be confident that you are good at what you're good at and the rest you can learn and you will be amazed what you can achieve when you're directly supporting people who give you that instant feedback of oh my goodness this is amazing Georgina Hansa from Fairview Farm. And how lovely to end this review of 2023 on such a positive note. Our thanks to all our guests and thanks to you for listening to all these fascinating people that we have in Suffolk. Uh, you can find out more about what we do by looking us up on social media or by visiting our website, which is www.suffolkmoney.co.uk. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast or whatever provider of choice you're using because we do get to chat to some f truly fascinating people. They're doing such great things across this fabulous county. We'll be back with more podcasts in the coming weeks. But for now, from Colin and me and the Suffolk Money team, until the next time, bye. Bye.